we are in the final three weeks of our series uh, this fall in the book of Proverbs, a series that we've been calling Wisdom's Way, Finding the Good Life in Proverbs. Now, for those of you new to the book of Proverbs, it is a compilation of uh, some of the greatest hits of uh, Israel, the ancient kingdom of Israel, their wisdom for life for how to live a, a good life of abundance and fruitfulness of influence, the, the good life in every area of life. And so you have all of these little short proverbs which serve not just as an invitation to consider wisdom's way in your life, but also kind of like a mirror, an audit of my own path, my own walk, my own way. In fact, the book of Proverbs over 120 times talks about your life and mine as our way, as our walk, as our path. You see, Proverbs assumes that we are all walking one way or another. Our lives are um, presently moving in one direction or another. All of us are on some way, on some walk, moving along some path, moving further and further towards being a wise or a foolish person. And so the whole question that Proverbs posits before us is not just what is wisdom's way, but are you living on it? Are you walking within this? Proverbs 14, verse eight, you've seen this multiple times if you've been with us over the past few weeks. It says, the wisdom of the prudent is to discern their way, but the folly of fools is, de is uh, deceiving. You see that the wise, the prudent, the person who's taking the time and they're attentively looking after their life, what is their wisdom? That they're discerning of their way. They're giving great thought and attention to the path, the walk, the way of their life. On the other side, it's the foolish who just kind of get dragged along in whatever direction is the, you know, the sweetest thing at the moment. The wise life is the one that's given great attention and detail and discernment. Or as Socrates is credited with saying, the unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life is not worth living. Or, or again, using Proverbs language, a life without discerning our way is not worth living. It is one that we're going to be bound up and being deceived and potentially moving towards foolishness. And so over the past few weeks, what we've been looking at in Proverbs is what does it mean for us to discern wisdom's way with, with self-control, with our willpower? A couple weeks ago with alcohol and wine, last week with Pastor Lorenzo with our work. In the coming two weeks, we'll be looking at wisdom's way with our words. But today, as Katie kind of pointed to, today we're looking at wisdom's way with our wealth. Wisdom's way with the money to your name. What is wisdom's way with all of this? It's a question of, of both vital importance because it's a crucial part of our lives, but also one of great biblical significance. Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York City in a little uh, piece that he wrote called um, Creation, Fall, Redemption, and Your Money. He, he opens with this. He says, the Bible talks about money 20 to 30 times more than it talks about sex. And that, that number is about the same in the book of Proverbs. Why? Because money's spiritual power blinds us to itself. When people are committing adultery, they know that they're doing it. No one is surprised by this happening. They know they're doing it, but hardly anyone who loves money too much knows that they do. People regularly confess sexual sins, but almost no one says, I'm materialistic or I'm greedy. If the Bible continually warns us about the danger of materialism, yet almost no one thinks they're guilty of it, this means a great number of us are blinded to and by the power of money in their lives. The only responsible thing to do is go on the working hypothesis that we're infected by materialism and must be on the watch for it. 
If materialism is that insidious and stupefying, it's a lot like alcoholism. Maybe the clearest sign of materialism is this. You aren't even willing to admit the possibility that you're enslaved to greed. Man, that, that line that he used there, that, uh, the assumption, that working hypothesis that we are infected by materialism has, has stuck with me over the past few weeks, especially thinking about that assumption of infection. Most of us know what that entails over the past few years. So much of early on when we were dealing with kind of COVID stuff, pre-vaccine and pre, like we didn't know like surfaces, no one understood how it was transmitted. Everybody, the way that we dealt with it, the whole point of the lockdown was everybody assumed that you're infected and that you're contagious. Assume and then live your life in accordance with you assuming that you presently are contagious and infectious. So we, we get what it means to do this, to assume that something may or may not be true because of the likelihood that it might be, and to then order our lives accordingly. Keller here is saying, if materialism is so pervasive in our world, in our culture, especially in the city of Los Angeles, especially on the west side of Los Angeles, then man, we would be foolish not to have at least some baseline working hypothesis, maybe I'm materialistic, and maybe I need to order my life accordingly. And so today, that's exactly what we want to look at. What does it look like for us to deal with materialism, with our wealth, to assume some level of infection and to live our lives, hopefully moving in the direction of wisdom accordingly? So that being said, why don't you join me in standing? Today, we're going to be reading from Proverbs 11, verses 24 through 28. We regularly stand at Collective when we read from the Scriptures, and this is simply like raising our hands in worship or bowing in prayer a way of, of bringing our bodies uh, into the act of what we're doing, that what we're reading here is something special. As Christians, we believe that the scriptures are speaking to us. This is God's word to us in some way. And so that being said, let's read Proverbs 11. You'll see it behind me, but you can turn or tap your way in your Bible if you'd like to, beginning in verse 24. It says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what they should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched. And the one who waters will himself, himself be watered. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. Whoever diligently seeks good seeks favor, but evil comes to him who searches for it. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Let's pray. Father, we... Uh, so readily acknowledge that we live within a world of greed and materialism. And uh, God, it's very easy for us to see that as it being something out there. Uh, we see that at the top 1%, or we see that with our neighbor next door and the new car that they bought, or we, we see that with some friend. And we are so prone to look at everybody else that way except for ourselves. And so we pray that today as we look at Proverbs chapter 11, that we would, uh, uh, by your spirit, set aside everybody else and you would help us to look at ourselves to allow Proverbs to work within our heart those questions of discerning our way that we might live wisely. Help us to no longer be deceived, to have the wool over our eyes by our wealth, but to see rightly. In your name we pray, amen. Well, go ahead and be seated. Well, Proverbs 11, to those of us looking to be wise and to discern our way, kind of one big point for the sermon today that's gonna bring everything together. You'll see it behind me here. Your wealth gives away your way. Your wealth gives away your way. If you are looking to discern the way of your life, am I living in the direction of wisdom or foolishness? 
looking at your wealth will give away, it will reveal, it will show, it will discern the actual way of your life. More than your words, more than you raising your hands in worship, more than what you say or even you think about yourself, the on the ground reality is your wealth, more readily than just about any other part of your life, will show you your way. Will show you the sort of life that you're building. And so today we're being invited to discern by looking at our way with wealth and we're also being invited to hear wisdom's way that we might align ourselves for those of us that feel that calling to do that. And so to kind of break this down into three little sections that we'll look at today to play around with this idea that your wealth gives away your way. In verses 24 through 25, we see that what you do with your wealth gives away your way. What you do with your wealth gives away your way. In the middle, verses 26 and 27, it shows us that how you earn your wealth gives away your way. So we're not just concerned with charity and giving away the money that you have, but wisdom's way is concerned with how is it coming to you in the first place. And then finally, we'll end in verse 28, because your way with wealth gives away your trust. And we're gonna see that that brings it all together. But your wealth gives away your way. Today, we're gonna pick up where we left off last week. Pastor Lorenzo was teaching on wisdom's way with work. And so we're gonna jump into the middle, verses 26 and 27 is kind of a little, you know, carryover from last week. And then we'll move back to the beginning and then we'll we'll close out. So let's, let's jump back to the middle there in verses 26 and 27, where once again, you'll see behind me, it says, the people curse the one who holds back their grain, but a blessing is on the head of the one who sells it. Now, this verse is contrasting two different kinds of people. The first are those who sell their goods as a service to the community. The blessing is on the person who who sells their grain. But it contrasts that with the person who is serving themselves. They hold back their grain. Specifically, they're manipulating the the basis of economics, supply and demand. They withhold the grain that they have, specifically so the price in in their little town would go up. And then they can sell it and make a greater profit for themselves when the demand is that much higher. You see, there's the contrast that what we have here is between the person who is selling, they're working within their economic, you know, givings and all that they're doing as a service to the community and the other person as service to themselves. This gets teased out in three other Proverbs, three examples you'll see behind me. In Proverbs 20, 23, it says, unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord and false scales are not good. The idea being back in the day, the marketplace would have, you know, we still have these in the produce section, right? You load up your apples or whatever and you throw them in the scale and it weighs it for you. You know, a modern version of this would be them, you know, showing that you have far less apples or something like that. And then you get up to the, the market to pay for it and actually cost that much more. Or actually reverse that. It would show you getting your, your apples weigh far more than they actually do. And so you have to pay more for these apples when you get up there. The whole point is this was a common practice of wicked economic practice back in the ancient world where you would manipulate the scales to show less or more so that you could get a better deal within your economic dealings. So the idea here in verse 20 and 23 is someone who their economic dealings, how they get their wealth is through cheating, it's through lying, it's through deception and the manipulation of the truth and manipulation of others. And Proverbs says that's the way of wickedness. In 22 verse 16, it tells us whoever oppresses the poor to increase their wealth or gives to the rich to increase their wealth is what's assumed will only come to poverty. On both sides, a way of income where I am looking out for my, the best deal for myself, especially and even when it comes to the oppression of the poor, or I'm looking for great income through the bribery of the rich, 
Proverbs says that is a fast track into foolishness and even it all falling apart on you. And then in verse uh, 26 and 27 of chapter 22 says, if you have nothing to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you? Dealing with the enslavement of debt, which in this form is not so much you selfishly oppressing or deceiving others, but you oppressing yourself as your own selfishness and desires leads you to purchase that which you do not have the money for. Now, there are certain, you know, Christian subgroups. Some of you might have heard of like Dave's Ramsey. Uh, he's this guy who's like, debt is dumb. And he's like borderline, like he has debt next to like killing people, like in like how big of a sin this is. Um, I, I by no means, I think there's wisdom around what kind of debt and if we take debt on. What's being dealt with right here is a specific debt that's a, a me living outside of my means for stuff or experiences. It's one thing to get a, ca- a car that you need, not a second car that you need with debt or a house that you need and not a house beyond what you need going into layers of debt. But the whole point is that selfishness is guiding and leading your income and how you're bringing it about. And so for those of us that are looking to discern our way with wisdom, the question is, is my income the result of deception? Think about your work, your line of work and what you do. This is right here, right now, you, not Bezos or anybody else. You is my line of work, one that comes where my income at some level is based upon a deception of, of me having a pricing or my company doing a pricing beyond what is, what is reasonable, of us uh, utilizing labor uh, practices which are deceitful in, in bringing those about. Or, or it, for those of you in, in advertising, the incredible work of advertising, the question is, at what level does my advertising move behind offering goods and services in an attractive way to deception? where I'm offering people something that this product cannot give. Similarly, thinking through our way, does my income come as a result of oppression? So we can think about working conditions of those that are, you're dealing with the product you know, being developed. Who's making the products that, that we are selling and we're dealing with? Are we doing this in a way that is actually genuinely leading to oppression as the basis? Are we oppressing the poor so we can get rich? I mean, this is even beyond just the working conditions of people. And this has been the big thing in the news lately has been with the Facebook papers, right? Is you have Facebook who actively knows what its product does to young women and continues to not just have it available, but to market it and figure out how do we utilize this target demographic even more. You see, this is more than simply just that. But then to continue is, does my line of work, is my income predicated on some form of bribery? or some form of debt? So these are the questions that Proverbs is inviting us into. To ask the question, when we come into work or when I get my paycheck, who is benefiting? I would encourage you, take this question with you to your work, your economic dealings in the week ahead. Who is benefiting here? Is this an economic process of of mutual service to one another or selfish manipulation? Because God deeply cares about not just what we do with our wealth, but the kind of world, the kind of community, or to make it even more personal, the kind of person that you are becoming, the kind of life that you are living based on how you get your wealth because it gives away your way. Verse 27 tells us, you'll see behind me again, whoever diligently seeks good, that is not self-seeking good, that is whoever seeks the good, the advantage of, based off the verses before, the community, those around them. Whoever diligently seeks the good of others seeks favor and goodness for themselves. 
but evil or, or disadvantage or bad comes to him who searches for it, not for himself, but for others. This proverb wouldn't make any sense. Whoever diligently seeks good for themselves seeks favor, and whoever seeks evil is going to come to him who searches. Of course, that's not, that's not a proverb. That's a, that's a basic statement. What it's saying is whoever is looking for the advantage of others will in fact find that favor themselves. And whoever is looking for the disadvantage of others and the advantage for themselves will actually find disadvantage in the long run. They will find that evil returned upon them. Your way into good or evil, wisdom or folly is bound up in what you seek for others, what you search for your community. If you seek good, willing to sell the grain, not necessarily at the best level that you could, but simply as a service to others with your work, or if you're searching for evil, holding back the grain, letting the prices go up before you flood the market. All this comes together with a quote that's been with me throughout our whole time in Proverbs. Bruce Waltke, you'll see this quote behind me. He wrote an incredible commentary on Proverbs that's been kind of guiding me through our teaching series. And this quote, man, you just engrave this on everything in your house. And just chew on this until this gets deep into you. Notice what he says. He says, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are those who are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. This is wisdom's way in the book of Proverbs. Everything in Proverbs is in some way about this. Are you someone who is willing to lay aside, to set aside your advantages for the sake of the advantages of others, or are you looking for what's most advantageous to you, even at the cost it comes to others? See, this is the paradigm shift that was, for me, working through this this past week, is that generosity isn't simply about what we do once we get our wealth, but the way that we get it to begin with. What kind of world am I building through what I give myself to each week? Is my income the result of seeking this mutual advantage of the community, even if it means making less than if I was following the common practices of my trade? For those of us seeking to live in wisdom's way, to discern, it calls for us right here to discern our line of work, our way of getting our wealth, and to ask who is benefiting here. That stepping onto wisdom's way might require for many of us a fundamental shift in how we work, for some of us in even where we work. Because Proverbs 11 is telling us that greed is not like your carbon footprint that you can offset by planting some trees because you bought a new phone or you got a plane ride somewhere. Greed, when it is entered into the world, cannot be undone. It cannot be offset by you being generous on the backside of utilizing greedy modes of getting the money to begin with. The question is, what kind of world are we building? We can't foster a community, a life, a world of goodness through unjust economic practices, even if we're generous after the fact. And so this vision of wisdom's way with wealth is that generosity extends to not just what we do with our wealth, but how we get it to begin with. But it does absolutely include what we do once we have it. Verse 24 and 25, as we look to what we do with our wealth, it says, one gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what they should give, but only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and the one who waters will himself be watered. Again, we have two people contrast. Do you see that? Two people contrast trusted. The generous, the one who gives freely, the blessing, the one who waters, and the greedy person, the one who withholds. Now the key here is this withholding what they should give. In the Hebrew, it's, it's literally that it was written is, is literally, they withhold more than what is right. Now another paradigm shift here is that Proverbs is saying, by saying more than what is right, there is, it seems, a right amount of withholding. 
for your own saving and spending and what you need. Now, there are totally times where Jesus, you know, in the, in the scriptures will call people to sell all that they have. But the baseline Proverbs has is there seems to be some amount that's right withholding for self-spending and self-saving. But the problem is what they're doing is they are neglecting to give. They're withholding more than what is right. They're neglecting to give in two primary ways that Proverbs shows us. You'll see it behind me. In verse uh, 17 of chapter 19, Proverbs says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. And then again in 3, verse 9 through 10, we saw this a few weeks ago. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth. And this is dealing specifically with, with the church's tithe, them bringing their offering, their money, about 10% of their income to support the work of the temple, to support the work of the, the priesthood, not just in uh, orchestrating the teaching and kind of you know, church stuff, but also it would overflow into caring for the poor as well. And it says, then your barns will be filled with plenty, your vats will be bursting with wine. You see, Proverbs is setting before us, the wise see their wealth as being for more than just spending and saving but specifically as a tool for serving the poor and serving God's honor through, as it was the temple, for us now, the church. And so when we're giving, going back to Waltke's quote, when we give, we are financially disadvantaging ourselves for the sake of the advantage of others, whether that is the advantage of the poor around us or that's the advantage of the church community or the mission and the honor in the name of Jesus. We disadvantage, we have less for ourselves so that there's more for others in our community. So just personally for me, this is where Ryan's been sitting this week and I've been really chewing on with Waltke's quote before us. Am I giving to the point of it being a disadvantage in my life? Another language of this is sacrificial giving. Am I giving to the point where I'm actually having to say no to things that I wish I could say yes to, I want to say yes to, because of the fact that I've already said yes to the advantage of someone else or something else, whether that's some ministry, whether that's some nonprofit, whether that's someone in my life that I'm caring for, am I giving to that point? Because the whole point is what we, when we withhold more than we should, it gives away our way. For the generous, those that walk on this way, they find that actually the way of wisdom, though, this is what's so fascinating, is that though we disadvantage ourselves, is there's a paradoxical reversal of wealth when we walk on wisdom's way. We assume that if we're going to give financially, that we are going to end up having less, not more, that, that, that those who withhold will have more, not less. But Proverbs says just the opposite is true. Repeatedly, we've just read and seen how God is generous to generous people. Notice this, that the one who gives finds themselves richer. The one who enriches others is enriched themselves. The one who waters others is watered themselves. The one who's generous to the poor is repaid like it's alone with God. And the one who gives to, honors the Lord with their wealth, they have their barns filled, their vats bursting with wine. Now there's a grave misreading of this, that God can be manipulated into giving us prosperity based on how much we give. And that is not the biblical vision. It's not prosperity, but partnership. God sees when people out, you little, us little humans are out here in our lives and we choose to disadvantage ourselves for the sake of others, God goes, that's what I'm looking for in humans. That's what it means to be the image of God, to be an image like me. We're gonna come back to this in a moment, how this is the portrait of who God is, the one who disadvantages himself for the sake of others. 
But when God sees humans doing that, he pours out blessing, not for the sake that they can get a boat or another car. Or The whole point of God's blessing is they've proven themselves to be a generous people. And so he goes, man, I, they've been faithful with a little. Let's, I'm going to continue to bless them knowing that they're now a conduit of my service and my work out within their community. So the whole point for those of us that we get this coming in is not, oh, I, I've been blessed that now because I tithe, I can sit on my butt and I you know, get all the stuff that I want. The whole point is when God blesses the generous is he's blessing them because they can be more generous now than they were before. This is actually what leads many Christians throughout history to live with fixed income living like your retired grandparents. Is they choose, they look over and they go, man, this, this is the amount of money that we need to live at a baseline level with all of our deep needs covered, our, our needs covered, Right? Maybe some level of basic savings and some level of inheritance if we have children. Some level of a little bit of a safety net so we're not a burden to others, right? This is what we need. And then whenever raises or benefits or new moves or transitions happen, they go, we don't need to change the fixed income. And so everything above and beyond that now just continues to be, that's God's. That goes immediately out. That sounds insane in Los Angeles. I know. That sounds insane to you right now. I'm telling you, this is an active like, dis, like discipleship rhythm for many Christians throughout history. The other alternative for many has been to outright swear off all possessions and they live in a monastery with a bunch of other stinky guys. And I don't think you want to do that. And I'm not saying that everyone is called to fixed income living, but I am saying there is something to be said about the fact that we, do, we have far more than we need and the calling of the people of Jesus is one of generosity and not withholding. So the thing is, if you want to discern your way in all of this, you don't need to look any further than your bank statement. Because as you'll see behind me, the reality is your wealth gives away your way, but also your way gives away your wealth. And what I mean by this is, is yes, your, your wealth reveals the way that you're on, but your wealth is naturally moves towards the life that you're giving yourself to. The way of your life, the, the path that you're walking, the sort of life that you're, give, that you're guiding yourself in, your wealth naturally, effortlessly moves into those things. And so the question is, as I look at my spending, as I look at where my money is going, what is my way that my money effortlessly moves toward? And the hard reality is, is that as many of us look at the, the hard data of our own bank statements, we find that we live within a way of self-interest, of comfort, of image, and building our own kingdoms rather than God's. So just this week, I, go sit down with your bank statement. And the whole point here is not judgment, but an invitation to imaging God and finding the flourishing and good life here. Go and sit down and look over your bank statement and just compare where is my serving through my giving? Where is my saving and my spending? And just ask, what's, what's, what's the story here? What's the way that's being brought here? I know for me, it's like Ryan, the way of like blue bottle and like, like that is like just coffee. Like just like, that's like the way of Ryan is like my little, like, you know, pacifying my own anxiety with like, I'll just go get another Cortado and this is great, right? Like I can like stave off the impending doom of like all of my life with just a little bit of espresso, right? We all have these little silly things that when we sit down and look at our bank statement over the course of the year, you're like, I spent how much money on that? 
I would just say maybe there's something like that that maybe you're not called to fixed income living right now, but there is something in your life that you're like, man, I have way more of that than I need. And what would it look like for me to leverage that for the sake of the community? Leverage that for the sake of the kingdom. Leverage that for the sake of the people of my city. When we look over this, we find this. Not just with our saving and our spending, but the sacrifices that we make. Everyone financially makes sacrifices for something where you willingly say yes to something and no to something else. And here's, here's the shtick, man. Here's the thing. I, I, just setting this before you, is so regularly we allow the sacrifices that we make to be about our way of comfort, of image, of building our own kingdoms in the form of our little houses rather than the guiding indicative meaning being my mission and this church community that I'm called to. You make sacrifices. Every decision that you make is some form of a yes and no. And Proverbs, I would say, is inviting you to discern what's, what's guiding that decision. And so this isn't like anti, like you getting a house or you, whatever. But the whole point is, you know, I, here's the thing. I had a conversation with this last night. I get the West Side is expensive to live on. The whole point, though, is it's not impossible to live on. But it calls for a, a specific sort of sacrifice that means I'm going to be able to sit in my bedroom window and look into my kitchen's, my neighbor's kitchen at 11 o'clock at night when he's eating cereal in his underwear. And this is like the most, like, I, I can't even, I barely can afford to be here. But the whole reality is, is that being in that house has provided me with far more conversations that I'm able to have about the gospel and about the work of Jesus than if I lived. We just recently moved. We were in one part of the West Side that, like, was incredible, but everybody disappeared into their garages. I've had more conversations since we made this move to like, man, it's, it's more expensive, it's not comfortable, and it's, I don't have a yard anymore. But like, I have had more gospel conversations with my neighbors than I have in a week, we just moved, than I have in six months. It's a sad, my kids don't have a backyard anymore. They need that. My, kid, my kids eat dirt. That's what they, that's, that's their sustenance. <laughs> So I'm just saying this before you. I get that when we talk about the West Side that it's, it's hard and, and there's some of you that don't live here. This is not to shame. All I'm saying is, man, we're, we're all sacrificing for something. And this is one, one way that I've been thinking about this week. Okay, and here's another thing. The American church is not wholly to blame because American pastors as leaders of American churches have not been doing a great job at this. There has been a trajectory specifically within, within American churches, specifically big American churches, specifically in Los Angeles, big American churches, where we have moved over the course of a couple of generations. I just want to just let's compare, okay? A couple of generations ago, pastors lived in these things called parsonages. Does anybody know what these are? Parsonages were houses that were built on the church's property where they, they did not own a home. Their equity was kingdom equity, their, their, their living and their focus, their material possessions were simplified and they lived literally within, on the church property. They, the whole point was the pastors didn't have material possessions. So when they were preaching about giving, everybody knew this wasn't about this guy getting something else. When this guy uh, was, was showing up and leading, the, it was, the whole point was leading the community in a way of, of saying no to our possessions as much as possible to the simplicity of being able to be a people of mission and generosity. And the pastor led the way in that. It's a few generations ago, a couple decades. And now the majority is pastors, I just, you know them. You know them. There are Instagram accounts dedicated to this kind of stuff. Pastors that own planes, pastors that wear shoes that are far exorbitantly more than they should. And the whole point is sweatpants. I saw one yesterday. We were out at breakfast and I saw one yesterday in $300 sweatpants. And I'm just like, I don't know. 
how are we both pastors? Like, how is this the thing that we're both calling? That I'm about to preach this, and, and here's a church down the street that this is exactly, I, I, if you, going back to Tim Keller's quote at the beginning, if you don't see that the American church is infected with materialism, that these are, their, these are our pastors, sorry, but this is what Ryan's been dealing with all week. Because here's the thing, the sad reality as we see in our churches and our pastors is that at the end of the day, we only suffer want when we get led by this sort of materialism. Not enough for the shoes, it's gotta be the car. It's not enough for the car, it's gotta be the cars. It's not enough for me to have the house and the car and the thing. It's like, I, I need a boat down in the marina now. Or let's not even go that far. It's just, I need the latest iPhone. Or it's like, I just need a couple more clothes in my closet. I need a couple more extra things. Like it, like, it is all before us and saturating us. And it, we only suffer want. Because what's happening now is we've cut ourselves off from the good life of partnering with God. And so we're going to look for that in some other way. And so we will take these, these mockeries of deep kingdom living for trinkets. And so you find this. We only suffer want. Because our wealth gives away our way. And for most of us, as you look at us, our way, as much as we may proclaim the way of Jesus, is far more self-centered. Scott Sauls breaks this down for us, specifically dealing with uh, us giving a starting point of 10%. You'll see it behind me. He says, according to a recent study, only 10 to 25% of the typical American congregation tithes, that is, gives the biblical starting point of, of 10% of their income. We're giving that out to the church, to the poor, and to kingdom causes. The same report concluded that if the remaining 75 to 90% of American Christians began to tithe regularly, then global hunger, starvation, and death from preventable diseases could be relieved within five years. Additionally, illiteracy could be eliminated. The world's water and sanitation issues could be solved. All overseas mission work could be fully funded, and over $100 billion per year would still be left over for additional local church ministry. Put starkly, this means that 75 to 90% of American Christians, those who collectively represent the wealthiest Christians in the world, are money sick. This is about American Christians. How much more for West Side Los Angeles Christians? What we do with our wealth gives away our way, and our way gives away our wealth. And as we survey many Christians in our own hearts, we are left asking, how many of those of us who claim Jesus' way are genuinely living into his wisdom with our wealth? Are walking in this kind of posture of generous trust, as we see in verse 28. Verse 28 says, whoever trusts in his riches will fall. But the righteous... Proverbs chapter three define this for us, are those who trust the Lord with all they have will flourish like a green leaf. You see, the way of either falling like dead leaves on the street or flourishing like the tree of life is all rooted not just in your generosity, not just in what you do for a living. It's rooted in trust. It's rooted in your trust. And this is where we find kind of the two ways when it comes to our wealth because it all revolves around trust. You see, folly's deception, for those of us that are undiscerning, is we trust our wealth as God. And when we trust wealth as God to provide for us what only God can, it leads us into greedy practices, both with how we get our money and then what we do with it. And then within that process, our predominant focus of our money becomes that of withholding, of saving or spending. 
where we, we have the savings account where nothing bad can ever happen to us because we have enough money to cover it all, or we spend ourselves silly. But all of this leads to discontentment. As it said, we only suffer want because the savings account is never big enough and we never bought enough stuff. And so it repeats. Well, maybe I'm just not worshiping my God hard enough. Maybe I need to be more greedy with how I get my money and what, how much I have. Maybe I need to save or spend more, but I'm still discontent. And then the circle begins all over again. This, back to 14 verse 8, is the deception of folly. And for many of our lives, this is exactly what we're playing out. The two ways with our wealth. On the other side is, is wisdom's way with folly. Lo, there should be a slide that has these two together, the two ways with wisdom's, uh, with, with wealth. Thank you. Um, I'm just saying, because I want you guys to see this. Proverbs is saying that the flourishing, that wisdom's way is not to trust our wealth as God, but to trust God with our wealth. And when we have this posture of trusting God with all that we have, this naturally then leads where we can freely and give ourselves, we can disadvantage ourselves freely for the advantage of others because we trust that God's got my back, not my money. This wealth, this thing that I think controls everything and is my ticket to everything that I need is so paltry compared to the power of God. And so I will gladly disadvantage myself with these silly things for the sake of the advantage of, of others. With that generosity of how we get it and what we do with it, it leads a posture not just of saving and spending, but this overflow of, of serving the poor, of tithing, giving our money to the work of the kingdom. But more than just serving, also living a life with simplicity and contentment. And then just like with Folly's way of wisdom, we repeat. As we find ourselves in a posture of, disc of contentment, we then are able to trust God with even more of our wealth, which then leads to us being even more generous, which leads to us serving even more people, which then again leads to us walking even more within simplicity, of narrowing down even more what is it truly that I need to live. No, we've seen generosity and serving already, but I've, I've kind of added this simplicity and contentment here because this gets highlighted in Proverbs chapter 30, the prayer of Agur. Proverbs 30, verses seven through nine says, two things I ask of you. There's a prayer. Deny them not from me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying and give me neither, neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that's needful for me, lest I be full and I deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and I steal and I profane the name of my God. How many, I mean, genuinely, how many of us trust God enough to pray this kind of a prayer, like Agur here? Not just to pray, but to build our lives this sort of way. This is, he's praying for God, let me live paycheck to paycheck is what he's praying for. Let me live paycheck to paycheck. This is the, you know, the fixed income thing. Let me, let me live with just what is needful for me. Now again, there's wise saving. There's wise uh, spending. There's, uh, Proverbs even details the, the good gift of, of parents who leave an inheritance for their children. Absolutely. But so often as we get so, we, 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 I am not worried about some of you guys not having anything in your savings account. I'm not worried about your guys' needs being met on a regular basis. There are some church communities around the world that that may be a thing. Like, no, you need to feed yourself. For us here, it is that first one. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? I think far too often so many of us feel so distant from God because we have, we have, uh, ev we have evacuated him from every area of our life because we don't need him. Or at least we, 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 we pretend that we don't. And we do it with wealth. 
How many of us trust God enough to pray this way? And that's the basis for all of this is trust. Do you trust God? And do you trust him with all that you are, including your wealth, or do you trust your wealth as your God? See, trust is the basis for a life of wisdom. It's what's called the fear of the Lord in the book of Proverbs. And this is all throughout the book of Proverbs is do you trust God? Do you, do you walk with a humility and a posture of open arms before him and say everything is yours? So God, I'm trusting myself to be your humble servant. See, this isn't just in Proverbs, but this is from, from our King Jesus himself. He taught in uh, the Gospel of Luke, restating much of what we've seen today. It's a little long, but I want you to hear from Jesus for a little bit and not just from Ryan. Luke chapter 12, Jesus says to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. These birds out in the field, they don't sow or reap. They don't have storehouses or barns, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are uh, you uh, than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do such a small thing as that, adding an hour to your life, why are you anxious about everything else? Consider the lilies and how they grow. These flowers, they don't toil or spin, but I tell you, even King Solomon in all of his glory, he wasn't arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow gets thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith, of little trust? Do not seek what you are to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world, all the people of the world, they seek after these things and your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags, wallets that don't grow old, and with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches, where no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your wealth gives away your way. And Jesus' invitation is, looking out at the world, do you see how generous the creator, the Father God is? Look at the flowers. Look at the ravens. Look at, look at all of these things in creation. God has clearly shown himself to be a giver, to be generous. And so why do you worry? Why do you withhold like he's, he's, not, he's not for you? See, for Jesus, a life within wisdom's way, with our wealth, with all of our life, is sourced in God's generosity, in trusting him, that he, he, has, he is on my side. He is for me. And so that means I can be content with what I have. I can walk within a life of simplicity and generosity. Not just because I trust that he's gonna be with me, but because I wanna partner with him. I wanna image him. And then as I walk in generosity out towards others, I get to be exactly what it means to be a human, to be the image of God, to reflect God's generous, generosity out to others. Because my, all of creation tells me I don't have a God who withholds anything. But he lavishly gives and gives and gives. And so for those of us that still doubt, though, that we can trust God with our wealth or with any area of our life, we struggle to believe that Jesus' words that the Father delights to give us the kingdom early church leader, the apostle Paul, would point us beyond just the teachings of Jesus to the cross of Jesus. 
In a letter to the church in Corinth where he's actually asking for them to step up their giving, in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Remember Waltke's quote here. The righteous are those who disadvantage themselves for the advantage of their community. And Paul here in 2 Corinthians says that's precisely who Jesus is, as the righteous one. He is the one who, though he had all the riches of heaven, disadvantaged himself by taking on the form of a, not just a human, but being not just a human, but a servant, and not just a servant, but going to the point of death on the cross, doing all of this for you. The lavish generosity of God that he would give himself onto these layers and layers of disadvantage and disadvantage the king of creation taking on a body that got sick, that got tired, that got worn down, that got hungry, that needed to go to the bathroom. This whole human experience that feels quite disadvantageous. Jesus enters into, walks with us in this. And through his cross and his resurrection has given us all the advantages, all the riches of heaven now. This is what's true. And so the declaration of the Christian faith is that for God so loved the world, what? And he gave. That's the primary verse. I mean, you see it at wrestling matches. Like anybody that doesn't know any Bible, they know John 3.16. And it's for God so loved the world, he gave. The baseline that we have is we have a God who is generous. So generous that in Jesus, he disadvantaged himself for our advantage. And so now for those of us who trust in God, and specifically the God revealed in the person and work, the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are now given to lives of an embodied trust where we happily disadvantage ourselves. We part with all that we have for the sake of others knowing him and for us getting to more readily reflect him to our world. And so the invitation, the calling to being generous is not, if you hear this as a baseball bat today, or as a word of condemnation or judgment, far be it. The invitation here is look at what Jesus has done for you. And what would it look like for that to so transform you that you begin to walk with a generous posture as well? Let's pray.